Warning, today's case discusses topics of sexual assault, physical, verbal, and emotional abuse, and crimes against children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast. This is episode 47. Today I'll be talking about the Cleveland kidnappings. My sources for today's episode are the Cleveland Kidnappings and ID, Wikipedia, abcnews.go.com, biography.com, cnn.com, people, and crimemuseum.org. As usual, all of my sources will be linked in the show notes. I just want people to know that she's still missing. And if anybody out there has a heart and they know anything that happened to Amanda, just please pick up the phone and call the police department. I saved a lot of things. And I'm not sure why. I can't believe that I'm sitting here talking about it. Oh, God, I shouldn't say this. Amanda disappeared on her way home after leaving her job at Burger King on West 110th and Lorraine a day before her 17th birthday. I just need to know. It's killing me. I need to find out what happened with my daughter. That story, sure, it was probably the most important story of my whole career. Welcome back, everyone. Cleveland police are asking for your help tonight to find a missing 14-year-old girl. Her name is Georgina DeJesus. She's been missing since after school yesterday. I wanted to know what kind of evil would do something like this. The documentary on ID was really good. I recommend it. However, it didn't go in the order, so I will be taking you through the case from the first kidnapping all the way to the conviction. Michelle Knight, who now goes by Lily Rose Lee, was born on April 23, 1981. Michelle had a rough life. At the time of her disappearance, she was estranged from her family and was going through a custody battle involving her son, Joey. On August 23, 2002, Michelle was given the wrong address to her, to her appointment. She ended up at the Family Dollar, where she asked for directions. The man in the store, Ariel Castro, overheard her and told her that he could take her to her appointment. Michelle agreed because she recognized him as Emily's dad. Michelle got into Ariel's truck, which she described as a really ugly red-orange color. They talked about his daughter until Michelle realized that they were going the wrong way. Ariel told her that he needed to stop at home first. Michelle said she had a feeling something was off, but Ariel asked her if she wanted to give a puppy to her son. Michelle said yes, so she followed him into the house. Ariel locked the gate on the way in, telling Michelle that it wasn't in the best neighborhood. Michelle said that they went through the kitchen, but she didn't hear any dogs. As we walked up the stairs, I didn't hear no sounds of puppies. 
So I got a little bit more scared. As we got fully up there, he shoved me into a room and shut the door. Michelle begged Ariel to let her leave. He cut up pictures of her son, cut up her ID, and took off her clothes. He wrapped an extension cord around her hands and legs and stuffed a sock in her mouth. He then hung Michelle from a rod. She said everything went numb, but she just kept thinking of her son. Michelle would receive the worst abuse over the years. She also received the least amount of media attention. Many people, including the police, thought she had, a run, had run away due to the loss of her son. A year passed before Ariel decided to kidnap another girl. Amanda Marie Berry was born on April 22, 1986. She disappeared on April 21, 2003, the day before her 17th birthday. Amanda left her job at Burger King on West 110th and Lorraine Street. Amanda would always get a ride home from work because it wasn't in the best, uh, the best area. That night, she told her sister that she would be getting a ride home. She left Burger King around 8 p.m. After Amanda didn't come home, her family immediately knew something was wrong, especially her mom, Luana. She had an amazing home life and was very close to her entire family. Just like Michelle, though, the police believed she could have run away. Her family said there was no way that she would have run away. A week after Amanda disappeared, an unknown male called Luana from Amanda's cell phone. He said that Amanda was with him and that she would be that she was okay and would be back within a couple days. Luana tried to keep him on the phone for as long as she could, hoping that the police and FBI could track the phone. The FBI were able to use their equipment and track the phone to a particular tower. The police knocked on every door and tried to search every home in that area. Luana also searched the neighborhood as well, hoping that if she watched people long enough, she'd see something suspicious. Luana knew in her heart that Amanda was still alive. She contacted the news constantly, begging them to show Amanda's pictures or run a story on her. When a third girl went missing, Luana knew that the cases were connected. Georgina Gina DeJesus was born on February 13, 1990. She was the youngest victim, only at 14 years old. On April 2, 2004, Gina was actually with Ariel's daughter, Arlene. They were good friends, and the two of them went to a payphone together on West 105th and Lorraine Street. Arlene spoke to her mom and asked if she could go to Gina's for a sleepover, but her mom said no. The two girls then went their separate ways. Ariel had been watching the two of them and pulled up alongside Gina. Ariel asked if she could help him find his daughter, and Gina said yes. Gina's family knew something was wrong when Gina didn't return home from school on time, as she usually did. It started out as a beautiful day for me, you know. It was the same routine. I woke her up. I gave her a hug and a kiss and told her I loved her. She left uh, with uh, her father that took her to school in the morning. At 2.33 o'clock, she didn't come home. So I was, wait a minute, let me give her 30 minutes, because maybe she stopped. She's probably, you know, joking around with the other kids and that, which would be a normal routine for her. But when I noticed 30 minutes went by, that's when I got really worried, because she should have been home. My mom was like, there's something going on. And I was like, Mom, what are you talking about? She's like, Gina isn't home yet. And I'm like, mm, she probably went to her friend's house. She's like, no, it's too late. I've called her friends. No one has seen her. Myra, something's wrong. 
I drove back to the school, I must have searched about at least a good hour. Didn't see nothing. Um, nobody's around. Got back in the car, went back to the house. Right then and then I started a building. Uh, Gina's in a lot of trouble. Missing posters were put up for Gina. Her family insisted that Gina didn't run away. She was from a tight-knit family and her parents believed that she was still alive. I watched the news to see my parents on there. My name is Gina DeJesus. My mom and dad is named Nancy and Felix. It helped see my parents on TV. So I would cry sometimes, and then I'd be like, they're still out there. It gave me hope, and I think that's what really kept me going. Out of all the sick things that Ariel had the girls do, that was probably in the top five. He made the girls watch their parents on the news talk about them, and he would laugh at them, saying that no one would ever find them. Gina said that when she arrived at Ariel's, he tied her hands and taped her mouth. He then put a motorcycle helmet on her and sexually assaulted her. Luana met with Gina's parents, Nancy and Felix. They all believed that the cases were connected. They tried to come up with suspects and even looked into employees from the middle school that Amanda had gone to and Gina was attending currently. One man was a janitor who was a convicted rapist. He had served his time, but was still able to work at a school attended by young kids. The man ended up committing suicide and obviously had nothing to do with the case. A year after Gina disappeared, the FBI created a composite sketch of a possible suspect. The man was described as a Latino male, 25 to 35 years old, around 5'10", with a pencil-thin beard or goatee. I do have to say the sketch does look a little bit similar to Ariel. Ariel did have a beard slash goatee, but it was a little shorter than 5'10". The cases went cold. Many TV and media outlets were uninterested with the story. The three girls went through unspeakable horrors in that house. As I said, Ariel would make the girls watch the TV and watch the news reports about their parents talking about them. He also made the girls play Russian roulette. Gina described a situation when Ariel had shown her that he had one bullet in the gun. He would tell her that if she pulled the trigger, then she hated him. Gina said that she did pull the trigger, but nothing happened. He turned the girls against each other. Gina remembers when she was first brought into the home, she was his favorite. They would then be given things that the others didn't have, and it caused jealousy. The girls were forced to use plastic toilets. They would be fed once a day and were lucky to get two showers per week. As I said before, Michelle received the worst abuse. She had gotten pregnant five times. Each time, Ariel would mis make her miscarry. He would kick her in the stomach, beat her with dumbbells, and had thrown her down the stairs. Amanda had also gotten pregnant as well. She gave birth on Christmas Day 2006 in a small inflatable pool. Michelle had told Ariel that he needed to let Amanda give birth. Michelle was the midwife and said it was beautiful that she was allowed to help Amanda give birth. Amanda's daughter, Jocelyn, called Ariel daddy. She knew that Amanda was her mom, but Michelle and Gina were given different names. The girls were allowed to watch TV, so Ariel didn't want Jocelyn to discover who the girls really were. Charles Ramsey, Ariel's neighbor, had been had seen the little girl several times. He thought it was Ariel's granddaughter. He was interviewed in this documentary. 
He said that he had he said that Ariel was a weird dude and would ask other neighbors why the house was boarded up. Everyone in that neighborhood besides Charles didn't take one moment to wonder why Ariel's house was that way. They minded their own business while unspeakable things were going on right in front of their eyes. In January 2006, Luana was very ill. She passed away in March 2006 without ever knowing what happened to Amanda. Ariel started to become more lenient. He stopped using the chains and would only padlock the doors. In 2012, a man named Robert Wolford admitted to killing Amanda. However, he later admitted that he lied because he wanted to get out of jail for a while. While this fucker was lying, the police were searching. Ariel told the girls that no one would ever find them and laughed that Robert's confession had brought the police so close to where they were kept. Shortly before the women were freed, Michelle and Gina were discussing about how amazing it would be if they went home. I just was sitting there drawing. Me and um, Gina was talking and I turned to her and said, hey, what if today is the day that we go home? Wouldn't that be amazing? And she said, yeah, that would be. That day would finally come. On May 6, 2013, Ariel left the house and had forgotten to lock one of the doors, the big inside door, even though the storm the storm door was locked. Charles said he had heard multiple loud bangs coming from inside the home. And I look out my window and I see my neighbors in the middle of the street, but they're not looking at me. They're looking at the house next door. So now I open my door and I come outside. What are you looking at? Bang, bang, bang. Oh, there's that. What is going on? What is that? They say it's some girl. She want to get out the house. Then what did you help her? We're not going to get involved in that. We don't know her. Ugh. So I go off my porch, right? What is the problem? Look, I need to get out of here. Then get out. And I can't. He's got the door locked. Or chained up, rather. I said, oh, God. All right. So I got a big, uh, big Mac in my hand. Just like McDonald's. So debate. Help. The girl I don't know. Four dollar hamburger I just bought. I know the hamburger. I just bought it. I don't know you. All right, here we go. Put the hamburger down. Charles and another neighbor, Angel Cordero, responded to the bangs. They kicked a hole in the storm door, and Amanda was able to escape with her daughter and called nine one one. dispatcher said that she had a female on the line stating that she was Amanda Berry and that she was free, that she had been kidnapped for 10 years, and um, she needed help. We immediately turned on the lights and sirens, and we headed towards Seymour. As we were pulling up, I see a, a young lady standing there holding a child. My partner asked her, is there anybody else in the house? You know, and she said, yes, there's two more girls in the house. So we started charging towards the house. Um, Georgina Davis, who's my being in this house also. My door was unlocked. 
So I peeked at it a couple times, said, you know what, I'm just gonna go out it. She kind of got excited. I'm like, that's probably not a good idea. I'm not even gonna try it, cause it's probably a trap. I don't know what's in his mind, so I didn't do anything. And then next thing you know, I hear footsteps coming up the stairs. Then I hear police, police. And then when the person opened the curtain and I seen a badge, I ran so fast and jumped into their arms and told them never let me go. The police responded to the call. They went into Ariel's home where they found Michelle and Gina. Michelle jumped into the arms of police officers. The police said they knew who Gina was as soon as she told them who she was. The women were taken to Metro Health Medical Center. Amanda, Jocelyn, and Gina were discharged the following day. Michelle was discharged on May 10th, four days later. Ariel Castro was arrested on May 6th. Every day after the rescues, more information came out about what these women had gone through. The police were stunned about the conditions of the home. They couldn't believe that these women were chained with these large, heavy, rusty chains. Ariel's home had been foreclosed on at the time. Ariel was originally charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape. More charges were added. On July 26th, Castro pleaded guilty to 937 counts, which included charges of kidnapping, rape, sexual gross imposition, felonious assault, child endangerment, aggregated murder, and possession of criminal tools. On August 1st, Castro was sentenced to life plus 1,000 years. He was also fined $100,000. To make matters worse, Ariel said he had an addiction to porn and sex and that he wasn't a monster. He said that most of the sexual relations were consensual. He blamed the victims for getting into his car. What a goddamn piece of rotten scum. Ariel Castro committed suicide on September 3, 2013, less than 31 days into his sentence. On August 7, 2013, the Ariel Castro home was demolished. In 2016, Michelle, aka Lily Rose Lee, got married. She also had a nonprofit to help abused women. In February 2017, Amanda joined Fox 8 WJW, where she had a segment about missing persons. Gina works at the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults. All three women have written memoirs. Amanda and Gina wrote a book together called Hope, a memoir of survival in Cleveland. They still remain close to this day. They are not close with Michelle, but they wish her the best. Michelle's books are called Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed, A Memoir of the Cleveland Kidnappings, and Life After Darkness, Finding Healing and Happiness After the Cleveland Kidnappings. This case is truly disturbing, but unlike many, it has a happy ending. Ariel Castro is a coward. Instead of spending every minute behind bars, he ended his life because he couldn't deal with the consequences. I didn't really go into much about Ariel. All I know is that when the police were doing their investigation, they looked into former, they didn't look into former employees, they looked into current employees, but Ariel Castro had so many complaints about him, which is why he was fired as the bus driver. These women are all inspiring. They didn't let what happened ruin their lives. They became even stronger and more determined to help other people. I don't know them personally, but I am in awe of them. That was a lot, so on a lighter note, my book recommendation for this week is One of the Girls by Lucy Clark. Summary. 
It was supposed to be the perfect weekend getaway. Six very different women traveled to a sun-soaked Greek island for a bachelorette trip to celebrate Lexi's upcoming wedding. From the glorious ocean views to the quaint taverns and whitewashed streets, the vacation seems too good to be true. But dangerous undercurrents run beneath the sunset swims and midnight cocktails because each one of the women is hiding a secret. Someone is determined to make sure that Lexi's marriage never happens and that one of them doesn't leave the island alive. Review. I love a good vacation book, a book that makes me want to sit on the beach or near the pool with a good drink. It's also full of twists and turns, which I love. I also love the characters, and I love to keep guessing until the twist is finally revealed. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd love to know what you think. Maybe next week it will be a little bit lighter because this case was very heavy. Please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram, join my Patreon, buy me a coffee, rate, review, truly anything helps. I want to keep doing this for as long as I can. I'll be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere.